Hello, I'm John Doyle. And I'm Sonia Missio. Welcome to Ahead of the Game, a soccer podcast from the Globe and Mail covering every angle of the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. Today we'll be chatting about Canada's devastating 4-1 loss to Croatia and how their final match against a tough Morocco could decide the outcome of the entire group at this World Cup. And later in the show, I'll be speaking with the Globe and Mail's sports columnist, Kahal Kelly, about his experiences so far covering the tournament in Qatar. So, Sonia, how are you feeling now? You know, John, we just had a, as you put it, devastating loss. We're out of the World Cup. Canada is going home early. And yet I feel positively optimistic about this team. I'm quite happy, all things considering. What about you? Well, I think you're supposed to be. I think that's the narrative that Canada soccer, uh, that the team, that John Herdman wants you to believe. But I think we've come to a, a turning point here. I always thought that Canada had a chance in the first round with the three teams it was facing. But at a certain point, we had to be prepared for the narrative to change, for it to pivot a couple of bad losses, and suddenly the storyline is, hey, we qualified. We look like we belong here. We scored a goal. Now it's on to four years from now. We're putting this behind us. Four years from now, there'll be a World Cup, and Canada will be not just part of it, but co-hosting it. Look, if this is the narrative that Canada soccer wants to sell, I'm buying it. Because two years ago, this wouldn't even be imaginable that a team like Croatia would have to put everything 110% on the line to play Canada. And yes, they beat us. And, you know, they had some fantastic goals and we lost the plot quite early on in the game and it wasn't our best turnout. But we're playing Croatia, a team who's made it to the finals before. You're comparing apples and oranges. But at the end of the day, what Canada did is incredible. From the beginning of this tournament, all I've said was that all I want them to do is score one goal. And they've done that. Not that they've scored a goal. All I want them to do is win one game. And when they do that, we take the next step and the next step and the next step. We've never been here before. And what we've managed to do is unbelievable. It's still that Disney story. Well, I don't think that's realistic. And I I don't think it's cynicism. I think it's just realism to say, Scoring a goal is a pretty low bar. I think there has to be a hard look at how this team performed. I look at my notes from watching this game and I see a bad giveaway. Defense utterly cut open by a single pass. Another bad giveaway. Alfonso holding on to the ball too long. Alfonso making it overcomplicated. I'm seeing things here that we need to look at as flaws in this team. Instead of talking about the Disney narrative, let's look at the flaws and let's be realistic and hard-nosed. But I think that's where you're catching yourself up on the word realistic. Is it realistic to compare a team like Croatia to, and absolutely no offense to anyone in CONCACAF, but a CONCACAF team who we're used to seeing? I mean, we're playing teams that are considered the best teams in the world in FIFA. We're playing teams who have made it to finals, who have done what we can only dream of doing, or managing to hold our own. Yes, there were mistakes. Yes, you can tell that it's, you know, they're the debutants for lack of a better word. Yes, obviously you want to win. But what they were coming into this game with and what they produced is something that I think this entire country should be proud of. 
and excited for because we're only going to get better from here. After the break, we'll take a closer look at Canada's performance against Croatia and what we can expect when this team plays for pride against a very competitive Morocco. Plus, we'll dive into other key results from the group stages. Okay, Sonia, I have to say, this is the first Canada game I have seen in a very long time where I thought John Herdman was outthought by the opposition, where his limitations uh, as a tactician in particular, great at motivation, maybe not brilliant at tactics against a team like Croatia. This is the first time I think um, the flaws were on display. I agree with you on that. The play on the pitch was a direct reflection of his decisions, his thought process. You know, he changed his starting lineup. He put in Kyle Lahren to start, which was different from the other game. He pulled him out eventually. I I do think that he got tripped up on a lot of his decisions. You know, for a coach like Herdman, he comes at this from so differently. You know, he wasn't a professional player in the past. He went straight from coaching women's teams into men's teams. There is going to be a bit of a transition difference there. And he's been running on a lot of luck. Um, Talent, yes, the motivation piece we've talked about, 100%. But I do think this game was one of those games that kind of open up that you can't always run on what's always been working. And I think that's almost what John kind of tripped himself over, that you have a goal called back right at the beginning, right after you scored. There has to be a mentality shift there, and I don't think there was. When Croatia's goal got called offside um, a few minutes after Davies scored that opening goal, that goal being called offside was ironically and unfortunately Canada's downfall because I think there was a little bit of arrogance in the play. I think there was a little bit of immaturity in the play, and I don't think Herdman adjusted for that. Well, I think it's it's actually more more simple than that. And just looking at things I jotted down during the game, I, I'm seeing things like, you know, another giveaway, um, a player not tracking back to defend the space that they have left open going forward. Going forward is part of, of Hurtman's overall tactic in, in any match, but drilling players into going back and defending space that they know they've left open is a thing you train players to do. Not giving away the ball easily is another thing. I think even something like Atiba being still on the field at, what, 70, 72 minutes? I mean, the guy's great, and but he's got 60 minutes in him. I think, you know, things like that indicate that Herdman's still has a ways to go. It's not just Canadian soccer as a whole, but Herdman as a coach with uh, with small things you drill into players to always be aware of in this or any other game. If you wanted to compare Canada to Croatia, I think where Croatia shows their maturity, that the fact that they've gone through this time and time again, is that everything they did, much to the point that you've made before, John, was like clockwork. It was very machine driven. You could see what they were trying to do. Even if you couldn't guess what their next move was, you could see what their end goal was at all times. Croatia was playing a tight game, an incredibly quick game. Canada has been known for its speed and the lead up and, you know, our first World Cup game. Croatia just blew us out of the water there. 
And I think they're just a tighter, more experienced team in general. If Canada wants to get to that level, I think Herdman has to look at what he can do both on the pitch during play to make sure that the team is thinking as one and not just reacting to the rest of the teammates around them. It's that what to do next piece that they seem to miss. If something doesn't go Canada's way, everyone forgets what to do after that. And that's the trap that they keep falling into. You could say there was no plan B. Yes. Uh, and and a, a coach should have planned a, a B uh, and have his players aware of that. I think one thing that anyone can learn from the Canada-Croatia match is that it's very hard to play against teams who control the midfield in the way that Croatia does. Luka Modric, you, you watch him in the midfield. You watch him pace around the center circle looking for the ball and determining how to open up Canada's defense with the right pass, with the right move. Does he go down the flanks? Does he go straight forward? This is one of those things that Croatia has always done. And watching Modric in that center circle with the ball is like watching a master painter in his studio. He knows what he wants to come out of this, and he knows how to paint in the fine details. I think as well that our defense went back to being the defense that we're kind of used to with Canada. John made some tactical changes in the defense, and it was very evident when we were watching. I will say, though, that we did get under Modric's skin, which I wasn't expecting. Um, I do think that does say a little bit about our players, that we're able to still rile up the other team and still frustrate them because they can't just walk all over us if I was going to pick out a positive in, in our midfield and our defense. But at the end of the day, I mean, as much as I hate to admit you're right, John, you're right. Belgium's game was our game to lose and we lost it. This one, after, you know, the first 25 minutes, I don't think we stood a chance. I think you're right on that. And, you know, it's we do need to remind people that although Canada did so well in qualifying and it did well against Belgium in a bitter loss, there are there are things that are wrong with this team. One of the, the other notes I took was, was how often when Croatia had the ball in, the, in Canada's area, the defense was kind of weak-kneed. It was unsure. I understand that, you know, defenders can sometimes be wary of being too strong and trying to get on the ball, giving away a penalty. But there was too often where there was just almost no effort to stop, to block. You can be very tough in possession from the back. You block the other side. You tackle. You try to get the ball away from them. You use as much skill as you can without endangering a penalty call. But I don't think Canada had that kind of emphasis there. Okay, John, let's let's put a stop on this game and look ahead to Canada's final game in this tournament. You know, obviously, unfortunately, we're out of the World Cup. But that doesn't mean we're still not going to have a big impact. Canada is essentially going to help decide this group of who goes forward. Morocco beat Belgium. Belgium beat Canada. Croatia beat Canada. Croatia tied Morocco. So right now, it's basically as up in the air as it can be. What do you think Canada is going to put on the pitch when they play Morocco? And what do you think their goal or their objective is going to be for that final game? 
I think Morocco is an interesting example of the countries that have done well at, at this World Cup. In a way, they're kind of like Saudi Arabia and that they are, they are tough. I mean, they've, they, they feel like a muscular team. Even when they're defending, uh, they do it with gusto. They block the ball. They move forward when in numbers. They're careful, but they're strong. I think Canada-Morocco is actually going to be a really interesting matchup because you could say that Canada played Belgium, number two team in the world, not at their best, an aging team, but still slick. They played Croatia, tactically very, very sophisticated team. Against Morocco, it's a who knows. You don't know which Morocco is going to show up here. Is it the one that will play for a nil-nil draw? Is it the one that will decide, oh, we can crush Canada and will actually get beaten by underestimating Canada? Okay, John, I'm going to ask you something that I know you're going to hate. What do you think the score will be? Morocco 2, Canada 1. Canada 3, Morocco 2. All right, Sonia. At the point where we're at now, every team has played at least once at this World Cup. So looking over the the tournament so far, after all of these games and results, Sonia, who's a team that has really impressed you? I would have to go with France. I think we were both hard on them at the beginning. I think the world was hard on them. There was very low expectations, but they've had a great start. They obviously have one of the best players in the world with Mbappe, and he's they're showing you know, what he can do and why he's considered one of the best players in the world. France, yes, fascinating case. And as they say in France, Liberté, Égalité, Mbappé. <laughs> that about sums it up, doesn't it? Um, he has been tremendous. It, it seems strange to say this, but often World Cup champions don't do well in the next tournament. Uh, Simon Cooper, who was on this podcast, uh, he explained when he was here that often it's it's complacency. The, the manager wants to stick with the winning group. He's unwilling or unlikely to disturb the existing group. Nobody wants to mess with the winning formula. And then in their first or second game at the next World Cup, it all starts to fall apart. The cracks are showing. This hasn't happened with France, and it's probably on Mbappe's back that this team is going onward. And I think it's really nice for him because, you know, a lot of people didn't necessarily blame him, but in the Euro, it was his penalty that they went out on. So I think this sort of like nice world redemption is happening to a player that really, really deserves it. He's a great player. He seems to be a great, you know, athlete overall. And it, this is his World Cup. I really believe that. Well, since we we just talked about Mbappe, let's talk about some other superstar players who are the fulcrum of, of a team or certainly the focus of a team because big storylines so far. Neymar for Brazil, Messi for Argentina. Brazil is this is a surprise package for me this time. Uh, and I would be one of those people, I think, who's guilty of not paying close attention to South American national teams before the World Cup. The sheer depth of the Brazil squad at this tournament tells you that they are candidates to get to the final. In contrast, Argentina, I think, you know, that loss to... Saudi Arabia, it showed up. The system 
whereby Argentina play. That is, they rely on Messi so much. And that's not just on the field. I think so much of the dynamic that surrounds Argentina is about how Messi feels about things. Messi has to get on with the manager. He has to be able to influence the manager and the manager's decisions. There's too much about Messi, the focus on him, in the Argentina mindset. Now, Argentina did come around and beat Mexico. I'm not sure that was a big achievement, though. I mean, Canada handled Mexico easily in qualifying for this World Cup. I think Argentina's frail, fragile as a team, and I don't think Messi's dream of going to a World Cup final and taking Argentina on his back to the height of this World Cup is not going to happen. I do think, too, that one thing that people aren't really talking about is the monkey on Messi's back, which is Maradona. We talk about Messi finally scoring in a World Cup and all the storylines were, oh, it's on the anniversary of Maradona's death. And how much does that, the, the sort of shadow of older teams and the ghosts of teams past, really overshadow how they're performing now? It's, you know, 2022. Are we still talking about the 60s, the 70s? Why does that become the sticking point to these teams? Interesting point, because that's Argentina for you. Uh, I have been to Argentina to to cover a World Cup qualifying game when Maradona, the late Diego Maradona was was the manager of Argentina. He he gave me a, a look that would kill uh, at the press conference afterwards because I had a translator who was whispering answers to me. That was that was Maradona, and yes, there is something wrong with that mindset, I think. In Argentina, they are very much focused on the past, on tradition, on adhering to tradition. Uh, They're very focused on their own tactics, on the way they play the game, which these days is more horizontal than it used to be. When Maradona was there, it was about going forward. Now it's about being horizontal, getting the ball to Messi, who at this stage in his career is not as nimble as he was. He's a different kind of player. I think Brazil has gone past that point of obsessing about the past and about heroes of the past. You know, there's a an argument going on still in Argentina while this World Cup is unfolding that Messi is, has never been as good as Maradona and never will be. The thing about Brazil is nobody in Brazil is saying, well, you know, Neymar is no Pele. They're not doing that. It's a, it's a problem with Argentina. We'll see as though they go forward, but it feels like a team stuck in the past. Well, here we are sitting here, Sonia, talking on this podcast about the World Cup. But as I know well, it's not the same as being there. When you're there, you pick up on things. You see things that the television cameras don't see. And then there is simply the mood of the tournament, the atmosphere that surrounds it. Now you are the one who talked to my good friend and colleague, Cahal Kelly, who is in Qatar. So you tell us about that. That's right. Cahal is on the ground at Qatar, and we talked about his experience being there. That is coming up next. So, Cahal, you've covered a lot of tournaments, but the World Cup is sort of in that upper echelon. Can you take the listener into your world and tell us what's going on in Qatar right now? Yeah. <laughs> uh, if the listener is going to come into my world, they're going to need sunscreen and they should probably take off a few layers. This tournament, th- there's two different things happening there in your question. There is the tournament itself. 
those things tend to all be kind of the same now. Uh, every World Cup and every Olympics, it's a bit of a traveling circus. There are hundreds, probably thousands of professionals who put those things on and they tend to go from one to the next. So those people, that show doesn't change. And Qatar, for me, uh, reaches the bar of anything else I've ever covered. Logistically, it's excellent from my perspective, a little more difficult if you're a fan. But I mean, they, you know, they built this new metro. Everything is connected. The stadiums are fabulous, like ridiculously fabulous. Uh, this is what happens when money is no object. Uh, then there's the tournament on the ground. Uh, the tournament on the ground is, as I say, it is incredibly, incredibly hot here, even in winter. As I understand it, Qataris are smart enough not really to leave their house until the sun goes down. So the daytime tends to be a bit barren if you're out and about in Doha. But after dark, the city comes alive. It's a weird city that way. Like I would say, you know, what typically in a Canadian city we would think of as, as rush hour, that in Qatar, that's 10 p.m. I mean, the malls are full and people are out and about doing their daily shopping, things like that. The waterfront of the city is, I mean, hopping. That's where people are spending shocking amounts of money to get into bars and for hotels. So, I mean, it really is a very localized event. Well, jumping off of that, we also have to talk about the controversies surrounding the event. Are you feeling them in Qatar? Or is it something more that we're hearing about back home and they're not actually being, you know, realized when you're actually there? It always, you know, I've I've written it a bunch of times and it, it was having done a few of these and there's always some controversy of some kind. This one, of course, has attracted more and a more variety of, of controversy. And when you start talking about human rights and how many people have died in the building, there's a far more important controversies. FIFA and the IOC and other people who run sports know from experience that those things are a big deal when reporters get to the country and they have nothing else to do. So they report on those. And soon as a ball is kicked or someone runs a race, everybody forgets about them. And I think that's happened here, at least. I can't speak to how people feel around the world. Speaking about how we're viewing things at home versus in Qatar, at home in Canada, we've been hearing a lot about stadium numbers and people going to the games. And a lot of times those attendance numbers are well above stadium capacity. And we're seeing a lot of empty seats in the actual games. What has the atmosphere been like in the stadiums? I mean, the stadium is full where you tend to see the empty seats and where, of course, TV catches them is in the lower bowls. These are the really expensive seats. This is the sponsors, FIFA members, and those people, they would rather be back in a VIP tent, uh, you know, at the buffet oftentimes than they would at the game, be at the game itself in their seat. So I think often those people are there. They're just not sitting there watching soccer. So if you go higher, if they pan higher in the stadium, the stadiums are pretty full where the actual fans are. They're in there. They're watching the games. This is an evergreen problem. Go to a Raptors game, I mean, 10 minutes into the second half in the best seats in the house. No one's there. People are still in the back drinking. And Qatar, of course, drinking a little more difficult. Have you noticed a impact with the ban on alcohol? So are stadiums more subdued? Are people still cheering? Do you still get that intensity that you would in a match that, you know, people are allowed to drink at? What has the atmosphere been like? I mean, it's a great question. Um, it's probably, you know, I hate to say it as someone who loves a drink. Uh, it's probably a better atmosphere. It does feel a little more family friendly. 
Um, typically, I was at the England-Iran game. Typically, if you're at an England game, you're moving through a sea, oftentimes, of extremely inebriated people before a game. There's none of that here, which is not to say that people haven't found a way to drink. Of course they have. But being drunk in public is illegal in Qatar. I think people I've talked to, people have really taken that to heart. Nobody wants to be seen to be drunk in Qatar. They're not sure what would happen if you were. They're certainly not going to get out of control in a way that they often do at football, big, big football games. So, you know, I would have to say that the atmosphere here is better. Inside the stadium, it's excellent. People seem in great throat. I mean, the Canadian fans made an incredible showing for themselves. Certain countries have managed to attract a lot of traveling support. Uh, Morocco is a great example. That really, Morocco, Croatia played like a home game for Morocco. But yeah, I don't see that it has affected anything inside the stadium, really. Uh, the zeal is still there. But outside the stadium, you do not see the level of drunkenness you might. There's none of that that you might see normally at big games of this kind in European or North American cities. Yeah, it is a different way of consuming the game. But going off of that, what has been the highlight for you so far? So it could be a match or a moment or even just a personal experience of you being there. Yeah, for me, though it might sound a bit corny and even unprofessional, at that moment for me was the Belgium-Canada game, the first Canada game. I, I think I'm about as built as cynically as any sports reporter, and we're all pretty cynical. But even I was when... The introductions were done and people were chanting, repeating the names of the players. I, I'm actually getting it again. I, I got tingles. It was this incredible moment that only this sport, as you well know, only this sport produces, I, in this way at least. I, I don't think that there's any other sport that kind of captures that level of passion. There's some sort of something alchemical about it. That was, it was a huge moment. And frankly, I was expecting them to be over, I don't know how you felt about it, I was expecting them to be overrun. Uh, I thought they would, and they weren't. I mean, they were the better team. They they slugged with one of the most experienced in the entire world, and they were better. That was a huge, huge moment. I completely agree. This leads me into my next question then. As a storyteller, what do you think your biggest takeaway will be from this World Cup and also your biggest takeaway from the Canadian men's national team? Two things. For the Canadian team, I think this is the beginning of the idea of Canada as a fully formed soccer power. Obviously, the women's team have been doing incredible things, but it didn't feel like a complete story. It didn't feel like Canada was producing at all angles of the soccer story. And there's a lot of soccer going on in the world a lot of, all the time. Most people don't watch 95% of it. Uh, so they had heard that Canada, they had read that Canada was good, but I would assume nearly none of them had watched Canada play. So it's one thing to read it on the page, and it's another thing to see them do it against a team like Belgium. Like people will now, people in the know will now talk about Canada as not a top, top team, but in the middle tier of serious teams. And that's not going to stop for four years. And that's a virtue, as we've seen with basketball in this country, that's a virtuous circle. So people are talking about the game. Kids are thinking about the game. Very athletic children are going to the game. People want to sponsor the game. That's how you make this a turn this country into what it probably should be, which is at least the United States and maybe sort of a sub-European quality team. Then there's the Qatar legacy. I think the legacy of that, which you're already seeing, is there was a real Jones in the 2000s and the 2010s to foist these things off on super rich countries 
with questionable international reputations who were happy to give you a bunch of money for it, do whatever you wanted, and nobody really cared. I mean, that's how China gets to Olympics. That's how Russia gets an Olympics. That's how Qatar gets a World Cup. I think that's over. I think this will have shown them They'll have, they'll have gotten through this. FIFA will still make a ton of money. This will go on. But this was not fun for them, obviously. Not in the same way. Like if Very recently at World Cups, 2006, 2010, they were just being praised to the skies for, you know, just their, their organizational efforts in Germany and then bringing the World Cup to Africa in 2010 to South Africa. But by about 2014, when it was in Brazil, and Brazil, the Brazilian populace wasn't particularly happy about the fact that they were paying for this and it, 2018, this entirely compromised one in Russia, and now Qatar, I think what they will say to themselves in the very near future is, we want to bulletproof these things reputationally. So if we have to go back to Europe, we'll go back to Europe. I do have a few questions from John Doyle for you, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. I will do my best John impression, which I've been practicing. For the first question, since you two have covered so many tournaments together, he asks, do you miss me? I do miss John. I miss John terribly. You know, when a bunch of journalists get together, especially in a heightened thing like this, what do they do? They get hysterical. They get hysterical. Oftentimes they get enraged. They work each other into frenzies. If anybody's 10 minutes late, everybody's freaking out. John never does that. John is always an oasis of calm. We could be sitting at a dining room table or in a press box somewhere. And John would always just be happily typing away. I miss John. He's, you know, he's my human talisman. Well, you may not miss John after this next question. He asks, why are you so down on Germany? Is it because of that incident in Frankfurt in 2006 that we agreed never to speak about? Yeah, like I said, I've never liked John that much. Frankfurt in 2006 was a tough one. John and I have had some adventures. Like I was at, uh, John and I were in a riot together uh, in 2006 before the Croatia-Brazil uh, game in which the media rioted for tickets John got hit with a metal briefcase. Like, like, I mean, it was like a full-on Tarantino scene. Guys were weeping and screaming and hitting each other. Yeah, it was a real scene. We've been through, we've been through, the, you, the people don't know what we go through. Okay, Sonia, finishing things off on this strange and delightful day. What matches coming up over the next few days are you looking forward to and why? Poland-Argentina is going to be an exciting game. Obviously, Argentina has a lot of pressure still on them. Yes, they had their win, but I mean, they need to finish out of this group and progress. Obviously, the talking point is Lewandowski. You know, we talk about Ronaldo's last World Cup and Messi and Modric and whatnot, but he's somebody that is up there. He is a one of the greats of his generation, and I don't think he gets quite enough fanfare. So... You know, he's already has scored in this tournament, and I think seeing how far he can go will be really, really interesting to watch. What about you, John? I'm looking at Brazil, Switzerland. Just how good or how great is this Brazil team? They won't have Neymar for this match, and they're playing Switzerland, a really tough-to-beat, a classic European side that defends well, snatches a goal, and defends that lead. Classic European stuff. Then there's Portugal versus Uruguay, the continuing story of Cristiano Ronaldo's ego. Just how long does it go on? Just how high does he go? I think, too, what's interesting about those two games is that they're playing teams. You know, Switzerland is is 
kind of considered an afterthought and Uruguay is also kind of considered an afterthought when playing Portugal. They're two really, really good teams that are very underrated. So I think this is both their time to step up. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Game. This episode was produced by Kyle Fulton with editorial assistance from Jamie Ross. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. All the music you heard on the podcast was composed and performed by Chandra Bullockon. And thanks to Kahal Kelly for joining us. You can find Ahead of the Game wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like this episode, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and share it with a soccer fan in your life. We'll be back Thursday, December 1st, discussing Canada's game against Morocco and previewing the knockout round of 16. Until then, you can follow all of our soccer coverage at theglobeandmail.com. 